So, um, to get started, I know we have competition tonight. Uh, there's free food over there. Uh, I'm just joking, it's not free. I was just going to say that for, um, you know, we could go partake afterwards. If you don't know me, my name is Jeff Cox. I'm on staff here. I oversee the Counseling Center, okay? So, Phil asked me a few weeks back, there was a gap between... Uh, what Ed was doing and when he was going to start Leviticus, and he said, do you have something? And he said, for six weeks. And so I thought about it, and I always like to teach. So my favorite book in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. And I said, okay, if I have six weeks, I would like to do an overview of that book, okay? So if you can hang with me for six weeks, um, there'll be about 35 pages of notes, okay? You could have picked them up out there. If you're looking through the notes saying, are we going to go through all of that? No, we're not, okay? Uh, there's a lot of other information that's in there that you can read on your own to fill in, so we're not going to do all of that. I don't have blanks, so you don't have to fill that in. And so um, if you're looking at that, because it's going to end up, like I said, it's, I think about 40 pages, so I'll bring an update every time through. Um, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, I just come to you now, and just reminded of the brevity of life, and just with um, circumstances and friends and things they go through. And Lord, I pray um, the study of Ecclesiastes could impact the hearers the way it has my life. I pray we could um, unlearn a lot of stereotypes that we've been taught about the book, and that we could see it's truly something that liberates us and um, causes us to treat our life like it is precious. And we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I have a poem at the front. A guy in a seminary gave me this years ago, one of my instructors. I've always liked it. It's on page one. It's called Love Me Now and Not Forever. It might seem like it's not applicable to Ecclesiastes, but I promise you it is. If you're going to love me, love me now while I can know. All the sweet and tender feelings from which real affection flow. Love me now while I am living. Do not wait until I am gone. And then chisel in the marble warm words on ice cold stone. If you've dear sweet thoughts about me, why not whisper them now? Don't you know it would make me happy and joyful as could be? If you wait until I'm sleeping, ne'er to wake and hear again. There'll be walls of earth between us and I won't hear you then. So, dear, if you love me, if it's just a little bit, let me know while I'm living that I may own and treasure it. That is unknown. Um, to give you a little history, uh, I learned the book of Ecclesiastes from a man named Craig Lobdell, so I would be less than honest if I didn't give him credit. So I was in my 20s. I was a student pastor teaching junior high students. Craig was the father of one of my students, so he would have been in his 40s at that time. He was a doctor twice. He was uh, a doctor from Bob Jones University, and he had written his dissertation on the book of Ecclesiastes. He was also an anesthesiologist. And I'm in my 20s, which I'll show you is about the intended audience of this book. You say, well, we're not in our 20s. A lot of us, why are you teaching it? I'll make that point later. And he would sit with me and teach me the book. And I had uh, been in church my whole life, and I'd heard a lot about the book of Ecclesiastes, and it was like in one swope, he just like said, they all missed it, and they did, 
I've heard things, and I'll talk about them from it's a pessimistic book. It's a time written. Solomon didn't know what was going on. It's about how bad our life is until Jesus comes. And I hope just to just get rid of all of that in your mind. He was so impressive, his character. I remember there was this song. It was a hymn we used to sing in our church called I Surrender All. I remember him telling me this story. He would go, I can't sing that song out loud because I have not surrendered all. I'd go, wow. And he goes, I don't know if I will ever completely surrender my children. That was just the honesty he had. Here's how impressive he was. Here's how he died. He got Alzheimer's in his 60s. He was sad, young. I remember I went and saw him early because I wanted to see him before he would forget me. Okay. But I do remember this. He was a doctor, and he sat down with his wife. And I deal in counseling. We deal with a lot of grief. And I remember this story, and basically was telling her this. There will come a day when you will need to put me in a home. And at that time, I won't want to go. And I will tell you that. And I don't know what I'll be, but I could fight it immensely. But while I'm in my right mind right now, you remember this. When I was in my right mind, I told you that's what you needed to do, and that was okay. From all the people who fight not to go, he was saying, I understand. Now, he was a doctor. I only tell you that to tell you the character of the guy who taught me the book, and now I'm in my 50s, okay? And I've taught this book numerous times. I find it to be rewarding, so I hope you'll find it that as well. Um, I'm going to begin with this, Ecclesiastes, they call it Millennials Under the Sun. Why do you call it that? We'll get to that later. It opens up, and these are the only verses we'll look at, you don't have to turn to them. The vanity of life, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils? Under the sun. That's how the book opens up. Okay? Now, this book is controversial. Why? Those who doubt the authenticity of the book, meaning they don't think it belongs in the Bible, it's been attacked, usually have three reasons. It's on page three, down underneath the canon part. Early rabbis and scholars had their doubts concerning Ecclesiastes' canonicity, meaning does it belong in the Bible? And they doubted it for three reasons. Here we go. Number one, contradictions. They think the book contradicts the rest of the Bible. I want you to let that sink in. Because there's things unique to Ecclesiastes don't appear in the rest of the Bible. And if you just read it at face value, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to think, this doesn't really fit, or here's what most people do. This book is about life without Jesus, and it's really bad, and Jesus comes later. Both of those are incorrect interpretations of the book. But that's one reason a lot of people don't like it. One is um, secular. They just think this is just human wisdom, and they attribute that to, they say, perhaps Solomon wrote it. And um, if you don't know anything about Solomon, um, he ended up an apostate. Okay? He's always a problematic author. Okay? Next, they think it's heresy. Okay? Now, I'll show you where these ideas come from, but I can tell you this. Although some rabbis sought to put the book away, it was never rejected by mainstream Jewish community. 
And the early Christians always attested to the authenticity of the book. Okay? Next, who is the author? And this is a huge debate. Now, if you grow up in very traditional evangelical worlds, it's never a debate. Solomon wrote it, we just go on our way. But you're at the well. So a deeper understanding. Who is this? Koalet is the Hebrew word that is translated when you go through the preacher. And I would say it is most likely Solomon. Okay? So what are the arguments for Solomon as the author? It's on page five of your notes. First of all, number one, the direct statement of the text says this, the phrase, son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's pretty straightforward. It would support the idea that Solomon wrote the book but uses this word or this title, koalette, teacher or preacher. The phrase is located in the first verse and oftentimes serves as a superscription referring to the authorship. And in chapter 1, verse 12, the first person speaker identifies himself as a king who ruled in Jerusalem. Number two, the implication of the text. Further descriptions of Coelette describes a king who enjoyed extravagant wealth and had great wisdom, i.e. who? Solomon. Third, there's a likely an intentional link between Solomon and a chosen acronym for Coelette. Number four, tradition argues Solomon is the author of the book passed down through church traditions over and over again. However, there are arguments against Solomon being the author. You can read those on your own, but go to number four. Solomon ended his life as a what? Apostate. Now, why does Solomon get the rap that he was a good king sometimes? There's two stories. Does anyone remember them? One's a very famous children's story. Divide the baby, okay? He asked for wisdom. If you go to the book of Proverbs, uh, David um, had told him, uh, no matter what you get in your life, get wisdom. It's a very famous proverb. Told Solomon that over and over again. One day the Lord says, you can have whatever you want. And Solomon says, I remember this one. And he asked for wisdom. So he got unbelievable wisdom. story that displays that is that women come to him arguing over the baby. Let's divide the baby. It reveals the true mother. He did something else very prestigious. He built a what? Temple. So those two things are what people remember a lot. However, what did Solomon do that was the most horrible thing he could have done? He introduced something into Judaism, into Israel, that even Saul, as bad as he was, never did this. It's the first commandment you're not supposed to break. He was an idolater. And after that, the kingdom splits. So Solomon is an apostate. So some people will argue, incorrectly so, well, he wrote this at a time in his life when he was cynical and pessimistic. And you'll hear that a lot. And that is not the meaning of the book. And I would just say this. The fact Solomon is an apostate at the end of his life and at times in his life, that's just not problematic for the book of Ecclesiastes. What other books do we attribute to him? Song of Solomon and much of the book of what? Proverbs. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, we don't. Sorry. There's no magic answer. Uh, you can guess and make stuff like he was young and he really loved the Lord, then later in life he became cynical. All just us trying to make it fit. Okay? He was a wise man who at times wrote a very wise book, and at the same time he um, sent Israel into unbelievable apostasy. And um, the kingdom divides underneath him. But that's usually the main reason they say, how could somebody so bad write a book? Okay? Conclusions. 
the internal evidence is strong, arguing Solomon's scholarship, um, authorship. So I give you four reasons, but on page seven, so I put this, what I just said there, Solomon is always a problematic author, okay? Now, who is the audience? I find this interesting. In the end of the book, it tells you who the audience is. And this is what is tough for me. And you say, well, I'm not a millennial. Well, what wisdom do you give to a millennial? At the end of the book, he says this. In the days of your youth, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, does anyone know from the context what evil days is he talking about? Old age. In fact, he tells these stories. It's funny. Your teeth don't work anymore. Your back hurts. Your ears don't work. It's this unbelievable metaphor. And basically what he's arguing is, remember your creator in the days of thy youth before what? These days come. Now, here's the reality. For me, I have to get an application out of the book. Well, the book always applies to me, but I got news for you. Those days have passed me by. I'm not to the evil days yet, but all of a sudden, I'll just be honest, I'm 52. Things start hurting. I go to the uh, person who cuts my hair, and they seem like they're cutting more hair off my face than on my head. I don't know. So then the book becomes this for an older generation. What would you tell a younger generation? Okay. So what season of life am I in? What season of life is your 50s? Two people this week that are my age, one's in a small group, one's been my friends for years, both had the news their father's died. That's been my weekend. That's my season of life. My parents are still alive. I'm very fortunate. Great relationship. Makes me want to hug them, kiss them. Thankful God's given us all of that. But that's the season of life I'm in. I'm in the season of life when I think the most about how do I spend time with my parents and my grandchildren. And that is the season of life I'm in. It is a season of life where Remember the creator in the days of thy youth. You either hear that verse and you think this, did I? If you didn't, that can bring an emotion up of sadness. And it can be the emotion of regret. But I can't technically go back in time to my 20s and remember my creator anymore. But that is the intended audience. You say, what do I do with the book then? What would I do in my 50s and 60s? I will do the same thing that a man who was in his 50s and 40s, when he had passed that, he taught me the book when I was in my what? What do you model for a generation that's coming after you? What will you teach them? Because I guarantee you this, I don't think it has anything to do with being cynical, but the man who wrote this book under the inspiration of God, who I believe to be Solomon, had observed life. He had observed the way the world works, and under the inspiration of God, he sang it. If you notice, I have something on the stage. I borrowed it from someone in my small group who has a child. Red tricycle. And here's the analogy I'm going to give you through the book, and this will be a huge introduction this morning. Uh, I have a grandson who's two and a half, coming up on three. Granddaughter would have already outgrown this. She's six. So imagine a birthday or Christmas morning, and in your life, 
Imagine when you were that age. If you're a parent, imagine giving that gift to a child. If you're a grandparent, imagine giving the gift or observing it. So a young child receives this gift. And I want you to think of it from the point of view of the person who gave the gift. Parent, grandparent, whatever. Okay. On that morning when the toddler gets the tricycle, what do you want or desire to see that toddler do and for you to experience if you're the parent? Give me something. What? Pleasure. You want him to what? Ride the bike. You don't want him to steady it. If you have a mechanical child and this could happen, maybe they enjoy taking it apart and putting it back together. I get it. That wasn't me. You want to see them ride the bike. Enjoy it. Smile. That's what you want. What else might you want from that child? Thank you. This is intuitive. This is the book. You want them to look back at who gave the bike to them and be happy. Thank you. Gratitude. Because of the gift. I'll give you one other thing you don't want to see happen. You would not want to see the child take the bike and hit their sibling with it. Now, as simple as that is, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. So what's the bike? And you'll get it in the end. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is this. This life, and I want to be very clear, not heaven. The book of Ecclesiastes is not about heaven. This life that you have on this planet right now is a what? A gift. It is a gift. And the book of Ecclesiastes, like no other book in the Bible, will scream, it is a gift. And here's the deal. God, through Ecclesiastes, has one huge thing. What does he want to see you do with this gift? Enjoy it. And I give you something else. He wants you to remember when you're young to be what for it? Thankful. And I can't take my life and go running over other people's lives. I have to love them. That is the book. So as you go through this study, what do you say? What do you want to get out of Ecclesiastes, despite it's going to be a very philosophical book? Here's the thing I want you to get out of it. Am I enjoying my life? Man, that almost seems like hedonism. I know. We need more of it. Are you enjoying your life because it's a gift from who? God. Are you thankful for the gift of this what? Do you live your life like that? And you're not using your life to what? Hit other people with your tricycle. My favorite book is The Great Gatsby. Not mine, I shouldn't have said that. My wife's favorite book is Great Gatsby. We have tons of Great Gatsby books in our house. She collects them. It's really the story about um, the futility of human beings, but the main characters in the book, there's a quote. It's just like they go through their life crashing into people. <laughs> it's this metaphor. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to encounter with our life with people in a way that they're enriched by it, and we love them, not just going. And I don't raise your hand, but some of you probably could remember, or you know some people that it just seemed like they went through life, what? Crashing into people, okay? That is the idea. So when you go through here, think back. So who's in your life that is a millennial age? 
who in your life is young? What standard are you giving them to go through? Next after that, the date. This is the end of page 7. If you believe Solomon wrote it, this is your entire Old Testament. This isn't in there. I just put this sheet up here. Okay. Adam, don't really know when he was. Not going to get into that. That would be a great question for Ed, who taught previously. Okay. That's not ever my concern. Okay. Uh, You'll see quickly, I deal with theodicy, the pain and suffering, the Bible, and I'm a romantic at heart, and so I check out of apologetics completely. All right. So. Uh, The Old Testament timeline. I don't know when Adam was around, but Enoch, Noah, about 3,000 B.C. Abraham, around 2,000 B.C. Moses, around 1,500. David, around 1,000. So Solomon writes Ecclesiastes between 910 and 930 B.C. So that's going to be about, oh, well, intuitively about 900 years before Christ. But here's what I want you to really see. Plato and Aristotle who were like their philosophy after Solomon, because we're going to talk about that, they're going to come along about 500 to 600 years later, and they're going to teach things very different than Solomon taught, okay? And you're going to get to pick up on what those things look like. So that gives you a date for when the book was written. So here's what we're going to do for the rest of the time tonight. You won't understand the book of Ecclesiastes unless you understand about six phrases. And I will tell you, the first one's the most controversial. But if you don't get this down, you will be skewed going in the wrong direction for the entire rest of the book. So if you go skip to page nine, and I'm going to go through these words. The book opens up, Coalette writes it. And this is the phrase. These are two monster phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes. One of them is vanity, vanity. Okay. That, that is the first word. And we'll spend a lot of time on that right now. And the next is a phrase under the what? Sun. Those are not hard to understand, but over the past centuries, okay, and I mean almost without fail, People have tried to assign a moral judgment to this word, and you can't. So what is it? Vanity. That's in the Hebrew, havel. Now, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. And if you don't get anything out of today, get this. And I'm not one to pick on Bible translations. I don't, I don't do that. I don't want to do that. But sometimes translators assigned moral judgments to words, meaning they went ahead and interpreted words for us when they should have just left the word alone. If you have a new and international version, they did that with this book. Okay? And instead of translating the word vanity, vanity, if you have one, it would read meaningless, meaningless. Okay? That's not what the word means. And the way we decide what word means is we let the Bible define what the word means. If you have another version of the Bible, they just left it vanity. I like translations that do that for this reason. That means it's up to me to study to decide that. But they put a moral, because meaninglessness is not a good thing. Fair enough? But that's a moral judgment. So what does it mean? The Hebrew word havel is translated in the authorized version as vanity 61 times, vain 11 times, and altogether once. It appears 33 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let that sink in. Of the 61 times it appears in the Bible, 
It appears in the book of Ecclesiastes 33 times. If you do not understand what this word means, you cannot understand the book of Ecclesiastes. There's only 12 chapters, 33 times. Solomon, who I believe who wrote the book, uses it over and over again. The word is the key to correctly interpreting the book. An overwhelming majority of scholars and students read meaninglessness into the word vanity. This translation affects the overall interpretation of the book. If vanity means meaningless, then Ecclesiastes turns into a pessimistic observance of life and all it brings. Because then every time you see the word appears, meaningless, 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 and you'll leave with the impression that this entire life is what? And then you got to fix that real quick, and you say, except Jesus comes later. No, that's not the answer. Okay? So what does it mean? At the bottom of the book, of this page, page 9, I said this. This translation is unfortunate. To be meaningless and to vanity requires the translator and scholar to take great liberty and exegesis. They've already interpreted the book. So this is going to be a little nerdy, but I want to show you from Scripture what this word vanity means. First of all, page 10. Vanity in Hebrew is not a moral judgment. Now, what do I mean by moral when I say that? It's not a judgment like good or bad, right or wrong. It doesn't mean that. Okay. And I know the song, you know, you're so vain, you probably think that it's not that kind of vanity. Okay. This is not the word referring to pride or self-focus. That's that word. Instead, it's a non-moral word having to do with substance and transition. Where do you get that? The basic meaning of the word is vapor or breath. To say something is vanity, this will be weird for a second, be like this. <sighs> if you were to go outside, and on certain days, and we've had too many this winter, and breathe, you can actually see your what? Breath. But can you catch that? There's no what? Substance. There's no consistency. And how long is it there? Just like your what? Your life. Now, man, this is depressing. <laughs> Remember I taught Ecclesiastes when my, in my 20s. I used to put a timeline of how far you were moving through life. I don't even put the timeline up anymore. <laughs> okay? You don't want to. You say, well, that's sad. It's not sad. In fact, it should drive us to do something. We'll get there. Isaiah 57, 13 provides a definition within the context. In this passage, vanity is related to the wind. When Ecclesiastes uses the metaphor, all is vapor. Vapor is the image and all is the context, the topic. All is a pretty big word. All is vanity. Since all is an encompassing word, one must understand the idea of vapor vanity to understand the author's intent. So, two things. Number one, vapor, this idea of vanity, this idea of breath, has an unsubstantial nature. You can't grab it. It's used in Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Kings 16 with idols. This is not a moral comment regarding the nature of idols, but rather a comment about their unsubstantial nature compared to the substance of Jehovah. So here's the whole point. In the Old Testament, when it would use this word, Jehovah is a real what? God. He's substantive. You can point to him. He's really there. The argument they would make are idols or what? 
nothing. There's nothing substantive there. That's when it uses it. You'll say, well, but idols are bad. Yeah, but that's not why he's using the word there. He could have said they're immoral in a lot of things. Next, this parallels something in Ecclesiastes that says feeding on the wind and of no profit. There's nothing substantial there. You say, well, that seems pretty bad about our life. No, it's just the reality of our life. There's not the substance. But here's the main point. Vapor has a transitory of short duration, transient nature. Abel's name means that. Genesis 4.2 means breath. The parallels in Psalms in Job 7.16 or a hand breath. It's how you would measure something. So here's a hand breath. I'm going to measure something. I guess if you're a tick or an ant, that's a long period of time. But for us, how long is that? That's short. That's our what? That's our life. It's quick. The contextual evidence comparing Scripture with Scripture and the etymological evidence defines vanity as without substance and brief. Neither of these definitions is moral in and of itself, although certain contexts might paint a moral or immoral picture. One must not read morality in the text based onto the word alone. Although something might be without substance and brief, this does not necessitate meaningless. Now, how many times in the Bible does it describe our life this way? This is just a quick perusing. Life is, Ecclesiastes 6.12, brief. Ecclesiastes 11.10 consists of a brief youth. Now, I am very sentimental. I have always been that way. I got it from my dad. I cry at commercials. Now, I have also, for the old masculinity thing, done church plants in Iraq, so don't give me that feminine stuff, but I cry easy. Uh, My wife got me to watch the show Parenthood. I know I'm about eight years behind. Yeah, I just cry at the end of every episode. I'm a crier, okay? A brief youth. My granddaughter couldn't walk, and I blinked my eyes, and she came home from kindergarten and said she had a boyfriend. gone. If you think about it long enough, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. I'm on a staff. (laughs) Pastors, they're not in here. In their 20s. I'll be in a room. I remember being in my 20s looking at people my age. I know some of you are older than me. I get it, but there's numerous times during the day or in my life now when I'll just take a quick look around the room and I'm the what? I'm the oldest person there. I remember the first time I went to my doctor and the nurse came in and I was like, oh my goodness, where are you in junior high? I mean, it just, it goes like what? Our life is a tale that is what? Told. It's a story. Here's the reality. I'll go to a couple of funerals coming up. And eventually I'll go to the funeral of my parents, God willing, they die before me. And they'll be mine. And what do we do at funerals? We tell stories, the high points of a life, and then we tell stories over and over again. And I won't get into the psychology of this, but we tell the same what? Stories over and over again. Because we're human beings, and we're storytellers. And that's what we do. But our life is a tale that's what? Told. Next, a pilgrimage. It's not supposed to last forever. (laughs) 
supposed to begin it and end it. A swift post, a hand breath, I described that one. A shepherd's tent removed. What were shepherds by nature? Nomadic. A shepherd's tent removed. That means you put it in the ground long enough to stay there to feed the what? And then you pull it out. See all the metaphors the Bible uses? Those are all to describe your life. You're planted in the earth, and then you're what? You say, I'm so sad, Jeff. This is depressing. Well, I'm a counselor, too. We'll share at the end, but here we go. <laughs> a thread cut by a weaver. I love this one. A dream. A sleep. A vapor. A shadow. A flower. A weaver shuttle. This is one. Water spilt on the ground. <laughs> Grass, wind, and nothing. Now you say, well, that's kind of depressing. I'll tell you a story, and I hope to give you what the point of Ecclesiastes will be. Years ago, I was in Springfield, Missouri when I was a student pastor, and we would bring our kids, students, to Kansas City. They were middle school, some high school, and the big deal was to go to Worlds of Fun. You grew up in Springfield, that was a big deal back then, and it was a different world back then. And we'd drive up here, and we would stay the night at a church here and get up Saturday morning. And I'm in my 20s, responsible for all these kids. And the first thing you want to do is make sure you don't lose any. Second, they don't get hurt. And third, they all show up at the bus on time to what? Leave. Those are your big things. Did I want them to encounter Jesus in a special way? Yeah, but mainly, don't lose them, don't get them hurt, and get them back on time. So you give them a little talk. You get to the park right when it opens, and then you give them a time at the end of the day when they had to be back. And I learned this from my youth director. I would always take my watch off and leave it, and I would look at all the kids, and I would go, I do not have a watch. I will not have a watch the entire day, but I'm still going to be at the bus at time. So you would take away all their excuses of, I didn't have a watch. Watch. Me either. I'm just going to know enough to be able to communicate intelligently, look at clocks, and talk to people, and estimate my time to get back to the bus on time. That's what I did. And then you turn them loose. They're going to get to ride rides. Junior high student ministry was the greatest ministry in the world. You didn't really have to be good at much of anything. They were just happy to not be with their what? Parents. They didn't care. Was it a good activity? They were away from mom and dad for two days? Two thumbs up. That's good. They loved riding rides. They loved being with their friends. How fast did that day go for them? It wasn't like school. Tick, tick, gone. So what should they do during that day? Ride as many rides as possible. Eat as much junk as possible. If you found a pretty boy or a pretty girl, try to ride a ride with them early in the day. That's what you would do. Because it was going to be gone so what? Fast. Here's what Solomon will argue. Your life is vanity. It doesn't mean it's without meaning. It just means it's a vapor and it's gone. And so we say, oh, that's so depressing and it's sad. And in an element, it is sad. But you know what Solomon's conclusion is this? You better go what? Enjoy it. Are you enjoying your life? We deal with counseling when people are having a tough time doing it. People will come in in immense grief. We help them. We help them walk them through it. But we'll tell them this. You do not get to decide how long you live. 
but you will get to decide how long you grieve. You do not get to decide how long you live, but you will decide how long you'll be bitter against that person. You do not get to decide how long you live, but you will decide how long you live with regret. Tick-tock, tick-tock. It is the uh, crocodile from Peter Pan with what's inside of him. A clock. Peter Pan says, never grow old. But that crocodile keeps coming back with a clock. And Solomon's arguing, are you enjoying your what? Life. And I'll give you how to do that. That's what we'll study every other night. Because God has ways to do that and not train wreck it. Okay? But here's the deal. The first thing you have to get through your mind is, am I enjoying my life? You know, it's funny. I talked to someone the other day, and they said, well, are you willing for God to move you anywhere in the world? Well, sure, as long as my grandchildren move there. You don't think God's big enough to move you anywhere? He's big enough to move me. He's big enough to move them. Amen? I'm being a little facetious. But there's a part of you as you get older and you get reflective, and I'm already talking like that. I do want to enjoy my life, and you're going to get out of Ecclesiastes because it is his what to me? It is gift. And he takes pleasure when I do that. So vanity, unsubstantial, transitory, quick, but never without meaning. And if we're honest, we all know that is true, don't we? Do you think it matters you spend in time with your kids, yes or no? Do you think it matters you spend in time with your grandkids, yes or no? If you're married and you were fortunate in this life to fall in love with someone who fell in love with you back and you got that nailed down, are you fortunate? Are you enjoying that? You say, well, I'll just ask you this as a little simple question, and I'm not asking it to really get a response. Do you have your health? Meaning, were you able to get up and walk into church today and sit and listen to something? And some of you might not have it. But most of us in here probably do. Yeah, I can still do that. And I can still feed myself. And I can still go to the bathroom without help. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes was. You got all that? Then you have everything. You got a gift. And you need reminders sometimes because the day will come when the evil days come at the end of Ecclesiastes when it says we have no pleasure in them. Those days will come. So what ought you be doing with your life right now? Enjoying it. You could do like a senior pastor I know went bungee jumped off something in his 50s. I mean, he go do something. You say what? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, my kids, they're really bugging me. Yeah, you ought to enjoy them. They're making some really poor choices. I'm sorry, you ought to enjoy them. Yeah, I'm really mad at them sometimes. Yeah, you ought to enjoy them. You ought to enjoy them when you what? You can. Mad at my spouse. You ought to enjoy them. They're really ticking me off. You ought to enjoy them. Yeah, we're not on the same page. Yeah, you ought to enjoy them. That's what you ought to do. That's what it says. Next, after that, we'll go through these. The phrase, under the sun. Okay? This phrase appears only in the book of Ecclesiastes in the entire Bible. The parallel for it is found in chapter 1, 13, and 14, where it says this. It parallels under heaven and upon the earth. The phrase under the sun refers to life and physical things here on earth. It refers to where you are from birth to death. That's what under the sun means. Under heaven on this planet right now. 
So the book of Ecclesiastes will tell you things that are not under the sun. And here's why this is so hard. If you study almost any other book in the Bible, we're going to want to jump to heaven. But unfortunately for this study, we're not. <gasps> Sorry. It's not what the book's about. This isn't a cross-reference to teach you the whole Bible. This is about your life under the what? Sun. So what's not under the sun? By definition, the afterlife. And it teases at it a couple of times in Ecclesiastes, but we won't get there. Number two, heaven. That's not under the sun. Three, prophet. We'll talk about what that is. That's not under the sun. New things are not under the sun. And that's a big thing in, Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing what? New. And if you've been around long enough, you know that. God's judgment is not under the sun. You might feel like it is, but it's not. That comes later. And the other thing Ecclesiastes says is not under the sun is dead people. So when you're dead, you're no longer under the what? Sun. So that's what the book's about. What are specific things that are under the sun? Number one, work. Now this is tough, but you say, what would I tell a millennial? How would I impact their life? You ought to enjoy your what? Your work. It's a big point out of Ecclesiastes. You ought to enjoy that you can work. You ought to find something to do that you like to what? Do. Life's pretty quick to spend your whole life doing something you want. You hate. It works under the sun. Next, injustice, oppression, and evil are under the sun. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. Ooh, just look around. So we need to figure out how to navigate that to still what? Enjoy our what? Life. After that, time and change are under the sun. This is interesting. We call it luck. We'll tell a story. It's a really good story. The fastest person doesn't always win the what? Wow. Don't talk about it. Well, I went to school, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and my life didn't turn out well. Yeah, a lot of people have stories like that. Time and chance happened to what? All of us. A lot of people, I deal with a lot of people going through divorces, gone through divorces. They'll sit down and say, I did this right, I did this right, I did this right. Why am I not like that? I don't have an answer. But time and chance happens to everything. This is a big one. Should parents ever have to bury their children? Sometimes it doesn't go the way it's what? Supposed to. Counsel a lot of people. Counsel people who, within a day after their wedding, counsel somebody who their spouse died on the day of their wedding. Time and chance happens to what? All of us. Tick tock, tick tock. Under the sun. Next, days of man's life. It says that flat out in Ecclesiastes. So, Ecclesiastes is about vanity, which means transition and no substance. And it's also about our life where? On planet Earth. So I know a lot of you have been here for a long time. You went through the book of Revelation. This will be the total opposite of that. Okay? Now, there's a couple of teases I said where we'll talk about the afterlife, and we have eternity in our heart. And we'll talk about that if you stick with this. But for the most part, this book's about your life from the day you were born till the day you what? Die. Next, vexation of spirit. This has two connotations with it. The phrase is unique to Ecclesiastes, just like under the sun. It means to feed or feeding on the wind. It says that in Hosea and Isaiah. Or to desire, desiring the wind. The good pleasure of Darius or the will of God. But you can think about it. It's like trying to be fulfilled with things down here that will not fulfill you. 
That's kind of the idea of it. So here's a big one. Ecclesiastes will say this. If you really want to enjoy your life, you better understand this, money won't do it. The people who enjoy their life the most don't seek to be satisfied, Solomon says, by silver. Why? Because it's like feeding on the what? I want it to give me happiness. It won't. Solomon is telling you how to enjoy this life based on what he's seen. And we'll get to that next week, what that means. Next after that, the word profit. This word, um, Ithron, is also unique, the Hebrew word, unique to Ecclesiastes. And it literally means this. The root meaning is to remain over. Profit, like what's left over. Profit cannot be found under the sun. And the whole point of Solomon, and we'll get into these things later, there is nothing left over after you what? Die. Now, what do we say in our society? He who dies with the most toys wins. Not what Solomon says. He who dies what? Dies. There is no profit under the sun. You say, well, I'm living for eternal rewards. Different book. But here, in Ecclesiastes, that doesn't happen. There is no profit, nothing left over. Next is portion in Hebrew. It refers to one's present assets. Our portion is found under the sun. That's at the top of page 12. What is my portion in life? A lot of things. My family, the relationships I have, where I live. Those are the gifts God has given me under the sun. And here's the point. My portion cannot be taken beyond what? Death. So if I'm going to enjoy it, I need to enjoy it when? Now, this isn't talking about eternity. And like I said, I'm a sentimental person. And my dad is in his 70s. I decided not so long ago, he lives in Springfield. I will go to Springfield at least one weekend every month if I can and go have lunch with my dad. Why? He is my portion in this life. And if I'm going to enjoy him, I better enjoy him according to Ecclesiastes when? Now. That's why I give you the poem at the beginning. Are you living your life to enjoy the things you've been given under the sun? It's powerful. Next, the author's purpose, and we'll close with this. I gave you this diagram, and this kind of illustrates the book. This is the other sheet, and we'll go through it. There's uh, three relationships that are going back and forth through this book, okay? Number one is man and life. So you have God, man, and life. So that's the one at the bottom, man and life. Here's what Ecclesiastes will teach you. Life limits man. Now, before you look at the notes, you're just thinking about this for a second, and this will make sense. My life is limiting. In what ways is my life, this gift God's given me, my tricycle, and notice if uh, a grandchild got this, the tricycle doesn't fly. It's limiting. In what ways is this gift of life limiting to me under the sun? In what ways am I limited? Tell me. I'm going to die. Who said that? Good, Eric. First of all, the duration's limited, and I don't get to plan that. Solomon says, that's limiting. How else am I limited? My health. And even my abilities. I wish I was a famous singer. Not going to happen. 
I wish I was a model. Definitely not going to happen. We're all limited. What else limits me? What? Okay, the Vietnam sensibility. Did you say gravity? Okay, here's the deal. I can't just teleport all over the world. I've got to travel a lot because I've been in ministry and been different places. There's a lot of places I'd like to see. Guess what? I'm never going to get to see them. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I have other things I want to do. I will not get to do everything I want to do in this life. I just won't. It's what? Limiting. The point of this, when you go through it, man and life, this gift, me, Jeff, and life, life limits man. I'm limited substantively. All men and beasts are made of dirt. And this is going to be kind of weird for some of us through the book. Is basically, we'll say this, God will say this, I'm going to die the same way my dog does. That can be depressing, but it's what? It's true. I'm limited. I'm limited, there's nothing new. I'm limited, all things are full of labor. I'm limited, there's no profit. I'm limited, man will die. And here's a real sad one. After man dies, he'll be quickly what? Within two generations. Unless you were infamous and did something horrible or something very famous, and then you'll be a tagline in a book. You say, that is depressing. Yeah, it is. You ought to get out and start enjoying your what? Life. I always look at people, usually older than me. I want to leave a legacy. You're not going to. You ought to go do what with your life? Enjoy it. Enjoy the people in your life. And man's future is unknown. It's very limited. So man and life. There's the first one. Life limits man. But here's what Solomon says. Man is to enjoy life. He'll say it over and over through the book. Number one, life is a gift from God. The probability of your existence is highly unlikely. I won't get into the science of it. That gets into all the sperm and eggs and how they had to come together at right the moment in time to make your DNA. You're not an accident. You're not. Your life is a gift. The biggest argument for pro-life is their gifts. Their gifts. Man is to enjoy life. Why? God made everything. Do you enjoy nature? Do you enjoy a good sunrise? Some of you enjoy fishing. Do you enjoy gardening? Me? Give me a book. Remember, I went to the first man camp. Is there a reading club? <laughs> All right, I'll go throw an axe around for a while and try not to hurt myself. My wife was out of town this weekend. Sat in front of a fire, opened up a theology book. I'm in heaven. I enjoy this life. I enjoy the gifts. I enjoy the things. Next, our possessions are a gift from God. Not to be materialistic. I have a house. I love my house. I love my house because grandchildren want to come to my house and play in it. I love my house because we have friends over and I have a small group in it. I love my house because there's laughter in it. I'd like to tell you we great, have great meals, but my wife and I neither like to cook, so we like to have order in for people to come over and enjoy. <laughs> Do you enjoy the stuff you have? Do you enjoy sharing it with people? Next, the opportunity and ability to enjoy is a gift from God. And that's the thing I said. If you walked in here today and you were able to walk in and you go to the bathroom by yourself and you can eat by yourself and you can see everything and you can still hear, then you got everything you need in this life to enjoy it. And Ecclesiastes reminds you of that. Even your ability is a what? Gift. I won't always have it. None of us do. Next, enjoy life now because it's a what? gone. Next relationship is God and life. So where do we get from that? 
If you look on this, this is God and life over here. So here's the thing to see from the book. God designed life. The book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, even Song of Solomon, I call these the reality books. This is the way life works. Not all the time, but most of the time. Simply this. It starts in junior high. If you like her, you ought to be nice to her. That's how life works. Not always, but most of the time it what? It does. If you want to be successful, you ought to work how? Hard. Not always. Sometimes we, you know, think of um, Creedence song, Fortunate Son. But other than that, most of us had to work in life. To, okay? That's how it works. God designed life. You can bucket. And you can try to. And sometimes you'll see the exceptions to the rules. Of why do these people have so much success in life? But the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes says this is the way God designed life. If you want to enjoy it, you better learn how to ride it. You know what? You could try to ride that on the doing a handstand. You could run alongside of it, but here's the deal. If your grandchild or child wants to enjoy that bike, they better learn how to what? Ride it. They'll get the most out of it. It's not as much fun pushing it. Have you learned how to ride your life? Next, life glorifies what? Now, this will blow you away. And this was sad, and I'll share this. Um, she's not here, and she wouldn't mind me saying it. So I have a small group, had one for years. And I'll hear this a lot with people who've grown up in church sometimes. It sounds real spiritual for a second, but it's not. This person I talk to loves to dance. Loves to go dancing, take dance classes, enjoy dancing. Makes her alive, thrills her. The day she's in our small group, and she just said, you know what, I think I'm not going to dance anymore. I want to invest in more eternal things. She probably got guilty during the sermon that she wasn't in enough small group. She's already in my crew. <laughs> to some people that would say, how spiritual. Our group, now you ought to what? You ought to dance. I got news for you. Your dancing glorifies who? It's a gift. I was in student ministry for years. Youth directors. I was one, but I learned quick what not to say. Remember one girl loved basketball, good at basketball, could have had a scholarship in basketball. Until she's heard a youth director teach her that basketball was her idol and she gave it up. She ought to play what? Basketball. Sometimes we're so spiritually minded that we're just not biblical at all. The things you love to do, the things you're passionate about to enjoy your life, it glorifies who? God. Your life is a gift from who? God. I've been in church my whole life. I cringe <laughs> when I hear people guilted and shamed to give up things they love and enjoy. Yeah, you can serve God and do the things you can enjoy. In fact, you can serve God doing the things you enjoy. But your life's a gift from who? God. It'll glorify him. You mean a two-year-old riding around on a bike, smiling, brings glory to God? Yes, it does. It glorifies God. As much as winning a sword drill of Bible verses in church, it does. The last relationship is God and man. That's on your sheet there. God reveals himself to man. How? He reveals himself to man through his word. That's what we're studying. And he also reveals himself to man through general revelation or nature. I don't know. I remember doing this in high school. I'd go out like at 2 in the morning. I'm sure the neighbors didn't like it. But I'd shoot baskets, turn the light on at my house. Springfield, Missouri, and I look up at the stars. Those were the times I thought, God's real. 
Because I was cynical a lot of the time. God's real. The what is our response. Man is to what? Fear God. Now here's the deal. That's the last verse in the book, and I want to say this. That's the conclusion of the book, not the theme. It's not a whole book about how bad things are, and then at the end, fear God, keep his commandments, and everything else stunk. That is not Ecclesiastes. He could have done that one verse. The theme of the book is life is a gift from God, and the best thing you can do is what? Enjoy it because it's a vapor, and it's gone under the sun. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is a conclusion on how you enjoy your what? Too many times people say, well, you're not supposed to enjoy your life, just fear God. Like it's, you know, a horrible life. My dad used to tell me this. I love it. And he said, Jeffrey, if there was no heaven, I'd still be a Christian. It's a better way to live your life. I believe that. Now, I have the hope of eternity, which is unbelievable. And that is the theme of the kingdom. But I got news for you. The book of Ecclesiastes says this is the better way to live your life. If you want to what? Enjoy it. Reader's application. I'll finish with this. Socrates said this, wisest is she who knows she does not know. Virtue is an ambition. Plato said this later, all things have universal forms, such as a book that exists outside the physical book of which we can perceive sensually, meaning there was something else or something inside you that's eternal. This is just a substance of other things. He wouldn't come up with that for about 500 years. Aristotle's the closest to Solomon. He comes about 600 years later. Believed the world could be understood at a fundamental level through the detailed observation and cataloging of phenomenon. We'll see next week that's how Solomon thought. How did Solomon learn all this stuff? He paid attention. He observed. You know what counseling is a lot of the time? Counseling is just best practices of what works most of the time. You might be the exception, but for the most part, you're what? You're not. What does Solomon say? Here it is. Solomon says this, life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. A life enjoyed biblically glorifies God. True success is found in enjoying life. It is wisdom that brings this what? I don't want you to leave here tonight thinking my life is almost over or I haven't enjoyed it. Here's the deal. I want you to leave through the book of Ecclesiastes with a passion to start enjoying your what? And asking yourself why you're not. Because it's fast for all of us. Rather than interpreting Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the specific incidents, these books are best understood in the context in which they are written, written emphasizing paths and ways. Picture a stream with a strong current. Although you can swim upstream for a while, eventually you will not be able to overcome the current and the current is the way God designed life. I always think of addictions. I will use addictions to cope with life because I'm trying to escape. You're swimming against a what? It just won't what? Work. You can do it for a while. But eventually our lives become unmanageable and our relationships fall apart. Because that's not the way we're supposed to live life. You can exist in a marriage for a while just surviving. A loveless marriage. You're swimming up what? Current. But eventually you would get worn out and realize that's not what marriage is supposed to what? Be. Meaning the book of Proverbs doesn't mean that every time it works out this way, but the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, both of those books together, teach you there's ways and there's paths. Here's the reality. The path for me to enjoy retirement is to save some money when? Now. That doesn't mean I couldn't get a disease and die. 
That doesn't mean there couldn't be a crash. It doesn't mean there couldn't be a war. But it just means the path of life to enjoy my life later means I ought to be saving some money when? Now. Here's a big one, cast your bread upon the water. I need to be a generous person. I can live my whole life thinking about myself, but I've swum enough what? Current. Eventually, the way to enjoy your life is to live it in relationships with other what? People. That's what Solomon says. There's two extremes, and this is the reader's application. And I'll finish with this. The one extreme is eternity is everything, this life is nothing. That's extreme. It's all for eternity. Nothing in this life matters. But we all know in our heart this life does what? Matter. These relationships do matter. The other extreme is this. This life is everything. Eternity is what? Nothing. That's not true. What you do now has profound effects on eternity, not to mention eternal life. The book of Ecclesiastes is the book that sets in your Bible that says, yes, eternity matters, and you have all these books, but it's just screaming at you. Your life now matters what? Two, and it's going by quick. Will you enjoy the gift God's given you and feel liberated to do that? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. All right? All right, so it's 5.30. What do they normally do at this time? Do they ask questions? All right, so you got a mic? Oh, very good. Anyone have a question? I know I dumped a lot on you. There's 40 pages of notes coming. So any questions on the book or anything you think? How many of you, this is the first time you've heard it this way, just be honest, and it's kind of raise your hand high. Good. Most of you have heard, here's the normal teaching. Solomon was really cynical later in life, and he just realized all of life stunk, and Jesus is coming. Okay? That is just not the Hebrew understanding of the book. How many of you can see it in a different way that's encouraging? Raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, you'll start. Actually, it's one of the books that'll just kind of pep you up a little bit. So, any questions, though? You don't have to do them. Yes. Is vapor um, in the Hebrew the same as vapor in the New Testament that Paul talks about your life as a vapor? Yeah, it's the same connotation. In fact, the theme that life is short goes all the way through the Bible. And the hard thing about it is, so here's the part if, and you don't, here's the deal. I wrestle with sounding like an old person when I'm talking to people in their 20s already. I'll think that. But here's the thing. When I, when I was in my 20s, I never thought about what? Dying. In my 50s, I do. Not like I'm morbid, but like for the first time in my life, I actually sat down like two years ago and I thought, I will have to retire someday. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the whole idea is it goes by fast. That's a theme of scripture. But instead of being, like, depressed about it, like, oh, I'm already 52, I can't do this. Instead of being that, it's like you ought to be what? Intentional about enjoying your life because it's a gift. But, yes, it is the same idea. All the way through Scripture, there's tons of metaphors. It's fast, it's fast, it's fast. Yes. And then, actually, when you get to the book of James and Peter, they also talk about grass planted, grows, mowed down. And you think, oh. And we'll get into a lot of this. This is it'll be a little bit morbid. It's kind of existential, but you'll have fun with it. I promise it'll be good. How we view and think about death will determine how much we enjoy our life. I can't live my whole life thinking like I'm going to live forever because I'm what? I'm not going to. 
and all of a sudden I start making decisions. They're dumb decisions, and I'll mention things that are important in my life, you know, like grandchildren a lot, but it's this, will I do this or this? I will do this because they're only this age at this time, and I will miss it. I will enjoy it. You see what I mean? You start thinking about stuff, uh, family, friends, doing stuff with friends, uh, those kinds of things, doing the things I enjoy. It makes you not lazy because TikTok. So anyone else? Yes. Go ahead. He what? He died away from the Lord, correct? Here's the deal. Later in Solomon's life, he introduces idolatry into Israel. They become idolatrous. Solomon dies. His son, Rehoboam, Jeroboam is the story. The kingdom splits. I don't try to predict, you know, where they were at personally. I just know the narrative was Solomon introduced idolatry. Now, here's the reality that we don't like. We want people to be all good or all bad. And that's just not reality. So I think Solomon could have introduced idolatry and still written the book of Ecclesiastes from God observing life. And it, that seems far-fetched, but it's a little more realistic. We kind of, uh, you know, the real reality is how could David write all the Psalms and commit adultery and have the guy killed? You know, there's just, God didn't use perfect people. But I do believe this, you'll see, and I'll talk about it next week. What Solomon did, who was a scientist, he observed people. This is, I've observed this, I observed this, I observed this. He writes it like someone who observed these things and said, this is what I know is true. People who think money will make them happy and they spend their whole life doing it and they look at the later of their life and they die rich and alone. And Solomon's just saying, that's not how you enjoy your life. But, you know, but did he did go into apostasy, but that's true. Could be, absolutely. I think it could have been. Yep, I do, and I, and I can make that argument. It's definitely written from somebody who has experience, and he's writing at the end of his life, because he says, I experienced a lot of these things too. And he's thinking, I'm going to tell you, as a scientist, at the end of my life, living my life from observation and inspiration from God, I believe it's inspired by God, this is what is true. I believe the book's true no matter what. But it deals with harder subjects. All the, um, the poetry books do. Job does. Ecclesiastes will, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs, all of those books deal with very difficult things of human emotion and things like that. But it's just an honest portrayal that he does. Yeah. But in the end, we don't know for sure when he wrote it. When I, I believe this. I believe you could argue without a doubt Solomon wrote this in the senior years of his life because it's just written that way. And he's almost writing like telling his contemporaries. He, it's almost like Solomon saying to 20-year-olds and teenagers, remember your creator in the days of thy youth before these days come. And he's like looking around, and it's very vivid. It's sad. It would, it would describe a nursing home at the end of the book in metaphors. It's, it's pretty brutal. If you've ever had family and gone or people, when you see the degrading, he's saying enjoy them now before the evil days come. They're not the sinful days. They're just the days when you can't do what you used to do. And so that, I think, is true. Yes. No, I get, and I'll repeat it, because he was so wise and observed. I do think that's true. And, um, and not to get into too much romantic stuff, but... 
Um, how many of you in here, if you're, okay, I won't ask it, I'll just say this. I pay attention, and I observe, and I like to think deeply about things, and it means a lot of the time I'm sad. Okay? I just don't skip over it. I, I like, feel, now, part of that's being in the counseling world, but I think Solomon did observe so much and pay attention. Some people just go through life. I never had childlike faith. My dad did. Mine's not. Oh, we'll struggle with cynicism a lot. And I think that does bring anguish on you. You do see things and you question them. And I think Solomon looked at a ton of things in his life and saw the sorrow of people. And some of you might relate to that. You might think, I am the kind of person who, you know, when somebody passes away or something goes wrong, you're not just like, oh, well, the Lord will provide or everything. <laughs> you know, you're like, If you're in counseling, you just deal with it all the time. But yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and those would, yeah, and, and what I would say about, I don't know if he did, but I would say this. Solomon's your perfect example in the Bible of there's things you can learn from life that aren't necessarily directly in the Bible by observing people. I mean, Solomon was like, there's these kinds of people, these kinds of people, and these kinds of people. So all the disciplines that have been formed come from people who are honest observing people. Let's just be honest. Uh, if you're going to teach a marriage retreat at church, you got like four passages. I mean, come on. You're in Ephesians 5. You're going to land in Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 7 on sex, and the passage in Peter about honoring. You can always get so much stuff. So where do they get all their information? They just observed couples over and over and over again. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says I ought to bring my wife the gift she wants to get on Valentine's Day. That verse isn't in the Bible. But if you observe people so long, you realize, yeah, that works, that doesn't work. Um, nothing, empathy is in the Bible, but there's nothing that says if you really want to have a successful marriage, you should empathize with the feelings of your spouse. There's no verse that says that. But somebody observed it long enough to realize they wrote a book, hey, guys, quit trying to fix everything. It's not like there's a verse in the Bible on that. And Solomon is the person, so he observes all those things. Now, it's interesting, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates don't come until hundreds of years later. Solomon, I think, is actually giving the biblical philosophy before those guys ever show up, you know. And it's inspired by God, too. So. Anyone else? All right, thank you. Awesome. So five more weeks of Ecclesiastes. You'll either leave uh, energized and joyful or depressed. If you're depressed, um, you know, no judgment here. Uh, Phil starts Leviticus in six weeks. So. Yeah, counseling hours open.